You are listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. Altogether, we make up Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, member-supported community radio. We also stream live on the web at kzyx.org. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Tree of Life Charter School, celebrating 22 years providing a public Montessori education option in Ukiah. Tree of Life Charter School families are part of a community where school and home are interconnected. Ages 5 through 12. Information at 707-462-0913 and treeoflifeschool.net. Mind if I sit down? Everything you pray for. Everything you play for me. Hi, and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore, and tonight I'm interviewing Mendocino County poet John Allen Can. We're going to be discussing Can's poetry and how it expresses itself in his life and community. Topics include being in the moment, finding one's voice and inspiration, and of course, lots of his poetry. But first, I'm going to plant some deep roots poetry. This is Common, The Corner featuring The Last Poets. Struggle and greed fight. We 
write songs about wrong Cause it's hard to see right Look to the sky hoping it will bleed like Reality's a bitch and I heard that she fights the corner I wish I could give this feeling I wish I could give this feeling They ride serving burgers as cats with gold permanence. Move they bags as herbalists. The dirt isn't just fertilist. People working and earning is the curve getters. Go where the cats flow in the current is. It's so hot that burner live the furnaces. Where the money move in the determined live. We talk, play lotto, and buy German beers. It's so black, packed with action that's affirmative. The corner. I wish I could keep this feeling. I wish I could keep this feeling. Yes, indeed. First off, I want to remind all of you that we are in our pledge drive for KZYX. And you can go to kzyx.org. You can mail a check to P.O. Box 1 Philo 95466. Or, of course, you can call during business hours, which is not right now. So write this down, 707-895-2324. KZYX keeps us connected connected here in Mendocino County and beyond. I know some of you don't even live in the county anymore, but this is one of the ways that you stay connected to us here. We provide local news from all around the county, and we also provide Spanish programming and local news. We have call-in shows. We have a community calendar that promotes events. And we have programmers like myself from all over the county who use our satellite offices. And of course, underwriting lets people know which local businesses support KZYX. We provide emergency information. Local public officials are on air. KZYX connects us to the outside world and to our county. We so appreciate you. And it is our 33rd birthday right here at KZYX, which is coming up on October 15th. So please, let's keep KZYX strong. This pledge drive is for operating expenses. Again, send a check to P.O. Box Philo 95466 or visit kzyx.org to express your support. Thank you. All right. So before I share the conversation I had earlier this week with John Allen Can, I want to share a bit of information about his background. He was born in Santa Monica, California, and earned a BA in theater arts at Cornell University during its years of student unrest. Eventually, wordsmithing overtook acting, and he left the East to pursue an MA in creative writing at San Francisco State. After graduation, he migrated to Santa Barbara, where Mudborne Press published his first book, Lemurian Rhapsodies. He also hosted his own poetry show, The Unseen Rose, at KCSB. He began Etheric Press and joined California Poets in the Schools to work with kids and poetry, which enhanced his livelihood for the next three decades. He also published 
Dinosaurism, an Illuminated Manifesto, and Lunch, an Omnimodal Experience. He moved to Sacramento in the mid-80s and later began teaching English at Cosimese River College. A central figure in the Sacramento Library's 2013 award-winning Poe Project, John Allen Cann ordered, introduced, and added commentary to The Slender Poe, an anthology of the great American writer's work. A volume of his own poetry, The Moon Over Madrid, followed from I Street Press. On-campus classes were suspended at CRC in March of 2020, so he finished his last semester online living full-time with his wife in Enchanted Meadows in Anchor Bay, California. Like many who hold dear the mystery of poetry, he says he already knows there is not enough time left to read deeply all the great poems that the world treasures, but he will keep at that joyful task as he composes his own work at the edge of history. Here's a conversation we had earlier this week. John Allen Tan, it is such a pleasure to have you here with me. Would you like to start us off with a poem? You know, I have had a, a little bit of a fun going back over all my old stuff thinking about this radio show, which has been great, to uh, take a long encounter with where, where I've come from as writing. And I thought I would read maybe the first poem that I, I worked hard on that got published in a, you know, a college book of poems. And, uh, but it's, it's interesting. It's, it's called Halloween in NYC, New York City. And I remember very much working on this poem uh, diligently in a way that uh, I think I've kept working on poems until they're, they're finished. And so uh, this was uh, the recollection of uh, an experience down in uh, New York City when I was back east at university, and it goes like this. Halloween in NYC. Watching buses pass by. Trash. Asphalt. Leaves. Pedestrians are pinballs with legs, with coats, Stooped necks, faces, noble beasts in automobiles. Someone says, which way? You nod. Leaning on a lamppost, grease, bosoms, ashes. Somehow you haven't enough money. Your reflection in a shop window. Someone's glasses, a bubblegum machine. The squeaky trumpets of shopping carts, chicken backs, laundromats, gossip. Something reminds you of memory, self-promises. There was a particular perfume once. Time passes, and one forgets everyone's cordial look of terror. Sitting on a john, directions, guidance, phone numbers, dogs, walking masters, you, walking yourself. Every doorway is a mirror, a mouth. There is time for a bagel, benches, taxis, dust a horseback cop eating a cigar. You are a passerby. You ask someone, I was here this morning? They nod. Long circuses of hands, costumes, squints, behavior borrowed from television. There are no clues. There are nothing but clues. Confuse and exit. The elevators have ears, neuroses, throats, an appetite for silence. And then one tells you she thinks with her twat. You look at her like a ruptured prophylactic. There was a certain perfume. Finally, 30 cents and the subway. Drool, twitches, sweat. You are given a seat, letters never written, a stick of deodorant. 
you shall sit for a long time. Never again can you close your eyes or open them. <laughs> Perfect timing for an October show. <laughs> yes, it's true. So you want to talk about yourself as a poet and your background, how you came to choose poetry as your calling and your expression. Well, you know, I grew up in a household where language was kind of a, a big deal, not a storytelling household. My mother was a journalist, my father a lawyer. So language and how you use language was always a kind of a, you know, it's always up front. And I spent a good deal of my early years being corrected on my grammar. Uh but I, I suppose the inception began with listening to songs on the radio and kind of getting excited about the, the words knocking about in my head. And then I wrote a little bit. I wrote a kind of a poem in junior high school. But it was in high school that I began writing kind of seriously. Uh, and then when I was in college, I, though I studied theater, I was, always, I was always writing. And this poem was one of the things that I, 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 I produced at that time. And then when I graduated from uh, from Cornell, I, I, I by that time I realized the theater wasn't really going to be the place for me, and I wanted. Uh, by that time I knew I was I was really uh, destined to be, <laughs> you know, this vocation of writing poetry, which was you know as somebody once said to me, kind of a, a vow of poverty. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I did have the good fortune of working with A. R. Ammons. Uh, at Cornell, and he uh, he was very very generous and kind, and and actually talked talked talk me into making my first little uh, pamphlet of poems. So uh, at that point, uh, I came home uh, to Pacific Palisades for the year between college and uh, grad school, and I wrote and I lived and uh, I made a very concerted effort to make sure I was going to be in uh, the writing program at San Francisco State, and uh, I was accepted. And so then I went up to San Francisco and spent uh, 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 a couple of years in that place. And uh, one of the poems that I wrote uh, that ended up in my manuscript goes like this. So this is where I was uh, moving Perfect. towards. I was influenced a lot by surrealism. Uh, during my year off, I spent a lot of time reading about Dadaism and Surrealism and, and feeling a kind of European uh, experience. And so this is called The Elastic Taboo. He climbs out of the wishing well into a room full of jade feathers. The organ grinder's monkey only has one hand. He pirouettes and gallops down the hallway of ice into the den where a tent is set up. Inside Gandhi and Monroe are throwing dice. On the floor there is a volume of verse, How to Succeed with Guilt. He goes to the closet, opens it. A meadow of empty stages lays before him. In the distance, an Amazon with lace of flames holds her conch, playing in the mood. With shoes of mud, he steps into a stream of Quantro. He dissolves into an apricot cloud that the ivory zeppelin falls in love with and follows to the end of the earth. So once I was done, uh, you know, I did, I did get a, I did at San Francisco State, I did get engaged with a, a kind of a poet survival class, and that class uh, involved me in poets in the schools. Well, 
what's a poet's survival class? Is in how to be a poet in the world? Yeah, it was, a, a, you know, it, 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 for me and several of my uh, my peers, including my lady friend at the time, um, we were put in a situation of a kind of internship in a, a third grade classroom. Uh, other uh, people were kind of trained how to, you know, to, to send work out and the like. But it seemed like it was a way of grappling with uh, the future of, of someone who decided that, you know, language was going to be what they were working with. I didn't even know that such a thing existed. You know, the track for a poet is, of course, to get your MFA and then ultimately teach and then hope teaching and that work gets you national recognition and perhaps your track to the Poet Laureate of the United States, right? The, or a Nobel Prize for your writing or something like that, correct? Well, I, I suppose that is, you know, a trajectory. But there were, you know, everybody comes with their own inclinations and disinclinations, uh, which I'm sure you've encountered as far as uh, how to make your way uh, as a poet. Uh, in 1973, 1974, 75, the whole notion of a master's class or, or, or program, an MFA or a master's in, in creative writing, which turns into poetry, uh, was there was just at the beginning of that onslaught, which now there are writing programs all over the country, and of course the country's generating poets all the time. So it's, it's, it can be pretty competitive out there for, you know, slim pickings in a way. But the main thing is you just keep writing, and you keep working at your, your, your craft, and uh, uh, if you're lucky, like the Thursday, last Thursday, uh, at down at the uh, Point Arena uh, Cafe, uh, where I read, you have a moment like that. You know, you have these little moments where you share your work. Do you feel that yourself as a poet, that the craft of writing, of course, is solitary, right? You and your thoughts and your pen or however you put your words down on paper. And then those moments when... You get to read them out loud. For me, I don't want to say it's the whole point, but I definitely, as a poet, live for that part of it, the expression or having somebody else say, "I that's exactly what I was thinking, but I couldn't put that in words, you know, or you just captured this thing that I've been grappling with or whatever that is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, you a poet may need, you know, a few really good readers, a few really good friends who are honest, who are receptive, uh, and that, 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 that can be all you need, really, uh, to, to, um, to keep at it. The main thing is you, to keep writing, you know, after that first early, you know, writing about relationships and passion and that whole notion of keeping writing is really a challenge with you and your own imagination. You mean just the idea of staying inspired? Yes, keeping yeah. at it. Keeping something yeah. new, keeping something in front of you that you want to write about, uh, keeping open to the the wind moving through you, if you will. What, what inspires you the most? Well, it's a number of things. Uh, I've been inspired by the beach down here at Anchor Bay, uh, and have a whole long working kind of poems in the open air, uh, writing uh, things that are happening in the in the weather and along the beach. And then there's the, the poems of ideas, where you, you, for some reason, an idea uh, or uh, a, a quote or something that you're studying, and the poem almost is like a, 
a product of that research or that inquiry. It's the fruit, if you will. And then there's the you know the the occasional poem that you that you write. Here's one that I wrote on a camping trip in the Boy Scouts, and I, I remember I wrote this poem, "Walking Back." It's, uh, it was written in desolation up uh, in the uh, Sierras, and uh, I had a vision of the the, the monk uh, poet Cold Mountain, uh, sort of acquired by the the Jen people, but a, a Chinese fellow, and he he appeared to me. The poem goes like this: I, I dream of Cold Mountain in desolation. He stood on the other shore across the jeweled waters, his long beard white as the full moon, just above Ralston Peak. Finger to his lips, eyes crazy joyful. We listened a long while to the wind tell its old story over and over again in the ancient pines until a solitary cloud drifted into the sky and melted away in the dawn. And that is the voice of John Allen Can. I want to remind you all, you're listening to Be More Now, right here on KZYX during Pledge Drive, no less. I'm your host, Blake Moore. Keep on listening. So I remember that poem was composed as I was walking, and I kept going over it and memorizing the lines. And then when I got to where we were going uh, near the cars, I wrote it down. So... That's one of those gift poems that you have as you're outside and you're being inspired and you, you generate it as you're walking. So it has the rhythm of the walking and the, right. uh, that sense that it has to be, it, it can be memorized. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that poems come to you whole or do they come to you in snippets? Both. Uh, oh. Right now I'm working on a, a sequence of poems that are I, I'm calling Dispatches. And... Um, they are, you know, we're living in a kind of perilous time, it seems like. We have all these different things that are going on that are, that are outside the poet's ken. You know, there, there's political things and climate things and, and uh, you know, famine things and all kinds of things. And, trying, and there's great writing about what's going on in the world. So to distill it, uh, that's, that's something that, you know, you want to you you be of the day, of the present, and yet you want to say something that has a timeless quality about it. And I know this is something in your own work. You seem to be very, you know, uh, cognizant to things that are going on in the, the body politic and the political body right. politic, as well as, as the natural world. And so those, those poems, sometimes they're, they're almost from bits and pieces. I have stacks of, of, of loose papers that I, I jot things down on, and then I, I put them together uh, in that sort of write them down first in maybe one of my journals, and then there's the, the kind of magic moment, which is I'm reluctant to do, actually, when I take it to the typewriter, when I take it to the computer and I begin to play with it, how it looks on the page. And so, why are you reluctant to do that? What's the reluctance about? Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, it, that's that's the final moment when you type it up. It seems like that's you're, you're, it's no longer it's the final end of the process, right? Now I'm getting better at. <clears throat> I mean, I've, I'm basically a, a a poet who writes by. You know, I, I believe that the poem happens for me best <clears throat> through my hand, through the breath, through my pencil. Uh, you know, on the paper, uh, almost a kind of 
the way I print, it's almost like over the years has turned into a kind of visual calligraphy, my own little style of, of printing how I write. And so there's that sense of that encounter of, 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 of instrument on the page, and, and there's something physical about that. Whereas I've never felt that typing is that physical. It's like, you know, it's, it's too easy. It's facile. You know? Right. And so uh, when I take it to the typewriter, I know I'm in my last phase. Not that things don't change, because the ultimate change for, or, or refinement of a poem is uh, reading it out loud. So once I've typed it up, then I'll start reading it out loud, and uh, I might type it up and print it out and take it down to the beach, actually, or take it somewhere and, and, and read it out loud. So the ocean has been my, my great uh, silent, uh, well, not silent. Not but silent, but your audience. The ocean is such <laughs> a great, I like the forest as well. Yeah. I had an experience one time where I was working on a, something, and I was memorizing my poems. For, I, I had about, for a while, I had over 45 minutes of poetry in my head. I was doing a poetry play with another poet, and it was an hour and a half long. And so I had, you know, a lot of my own poems memorized. And I was walking and working on this poem, and I got to the top of this clearing over a bowl overlooking Muir Woods up on Panoramic, that whole area of Mount Camelpais. And I did this poem, and the trees erupted as I finished. And it felt like a stadium of 20,000 people just cheering for me. My whole body just got goosebumps all the way up, and I was thinking, oh... This is why people go for the faint. It was undescribable, and I just felt so acknowledged by the universe without having to deal with paparazzi and all the other things. It was really quite an experience. I'm sure the ocean's giving you something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up going down to the beach uh, in Santa Monica, and uh, then I lived nine years in uh, Santa Barbara, and the beach was uh, within walking distance. And now it's really... And then the summer, our summer, we used to go up to Carpinteria just outside Santa Barbara when I was a kid. That was where we would uh, vacation. And so in a way, uh, Anchor Bay Beach is a little bit like Carpinteria Beach as far as a beach that's from my childhood that I've got. I've added up in that sort of place where the, the magical is ever-present. Do you like to read us another poem? Yeah. Uh, you know, I thought I'd read something from uh, Moon, Over the Mid- Moon Over Madrid, uh, the book that I that we exchanged, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And it's a poem about sort of the process or the adventure of, uh, of becoming a writer. It's called Ode to the Left-Hand Path. Mm-hmm. And the left-hand path is the path that one takes when um, the, where you are no longer suffices, where you have to make a, a, a move. It's a, a notion from Joseph Campbell that the left-hand path is the one for the artist who has to trail, make a blaze a trail that doesn't, no one else has gone. And so this is called Ode to the Left-Hand Path. From my earliest cognition, I felt a kilter, a skew. I didn't fit in with what others surmised of me, nor did the rituals of our village make any sense. Sundays on a hard bench or pinning the nose on a donkey? There was a ship within me that wanted to tilt into uncharted waters, ready to engage sea monsters and typhoons. My bliss beckoned. At 17, 
a gnome appeared between pages of a book of poems found on a bench near the edge of town. The gnome looked at me with bright green eyes, and though tiny as a sparrow, took hold of my hand fiercely and drew me off into the woods where there was nothing to do but bushwhack through the forest of objections until a clear space opened and though what lay ahead was nothing at all like anything I'd ever beheld before and no words for it yet existed in the alphabet of adventure as if in the company of the naked beloved I carried on. Without any compass save intuition, I ventured through atonal grass, crossed the river of quicksilver abstractions, and nearly lost my way in the mountains of transparent enigma. Always, for the first time, I move where no one else has ever been. I feather along the razor's edge until I spot footprints of some powerful creature possibly a sphinx of some kind. And by stealth and perseverance, follow its strange tracks through a labyrinthine thicket where only ghosts dwell. And after what feels like the end of time, at last I find its den in the mirrored chamber of my heart. There you have it. I like the way you read that. That was just a beautiful trajectory through the poem, the left-hand path, yes. One thing you said when you were talking a minute ago is you said you typed them on the typewriter. Is that true? Well, I guess I did type them for a long time on a typewriter. I guess I always think of the keyboard as kind of a typewriter. Okay. I just was wondering. I I saw you with a Smith Corona and carbon paper, and I thought, really? Wow. (laughs) Corona, as a matter of fact. And when my mom – and I got – I guess I – that two two little small typewriters that I carried along for a long time, and for a long time I didn't have a typewriter that I really wanted to work on. I I borrowed uh, people's uh, selectrics. Sometimes I would go into offices after uh, when I was working at a school. I would uh, the principal and I would have a talk, and he'd say, "Oh yeah, here's the key. You can come in and during the weekend and type your poems up." And so uh, it, <laughs> uh, there you have it. You know, it's a, now it's the computer, and it's great. It stores things, uh, and going over the poems I have, you know, it's been interesting how many different files I have of poems of certain phases and certain periods. It's been interesting preparing for this. You know, I did want to share one thing, though, kind of a fun thing, if you don't mind. Of course. It's, it's a manifesto I wrote during the, um, the early 80s. And uh, it's called, it's, it's a manifesto for my movement, uh, dinosaurism. I was fascinated by dinosaurs when I was a kid, as many kids are. And so I thought, well, okay, it's, uh, let's see how we can mythologize uh, dinosaurism. So I'm just going to read you a, a few things in one poem from uh, my manifesto, which was performed a couple times uh, in, in different congregations, variations in both Santa Barbara and Hollywood. So I address the growing interest in dinosaurism. Without question, dinosaurism is moving slowly, yet considering that dinosaurism's aesthetics have taken innumerable centuries to formulate, it's no wonder grand things move without haste. As the main promulgator of this movement, I present this manifesto with an urgent humility, both asserting and yielding 
in the same gesture. Dinosaurism brings us around to the beginning again, where our origins are already leaving us. In a sense, dinosaurism is evolution eating its own tail. Dinosaurism possesses no schedule for success. It is unregrettably the most unhurried movement of the 20th century. You might say this manifesto has literally taken millions of years to write. It arises out of a thoroughly monumental hesitancy, delectations of ease, sometimes even profound laziness, have been associated with dinosaurism, and rightly so, though do bear always in mind that dinosaurism offers the silence of a carboniferous dawn whose dew transmutes into an amniotic bath both egg and reptile spring from. What is dinosaurism? An unhatched egg of data filling the hole left by vorticism, surmounting the smudge remaining of abstract expressionism, purloining the window mirror of surrealism, equally as grave as existentialism, more minimal than minimalism, more inclusive than op. Such is dinosaurism. If dinosaurism founds itself on the premise all time is simultaneous in the mind, then it is no surprise so many of these so-said monsters of the past find their most liberating modern appearance in parables and poems. An example, the parable of the Allosaurus. The Allosaurus is kind of a version of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, but a different time, but basically the upright theropod. Parable of the Allosaurus. One day, an Allosaurus came upon a still pool by way of an overhanging cliff equally as far from the shimmering liquid surface as the water was deep. For the first time in this carnosaur's career, he beheld his own visage, and his small brain was seized both by attraction and repulsion. His heart conflagrated in a swirl of admiration and disgust. Such a titanic ambivalence mounted in this creature such a violence of confrontation with his own image, being both seduced and rejected, that his last gesture was to drown while simultaneously kissing and devouring his own reflection. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. Well, I, glad you let me, I, have never, I haven't read some of these things in a long time. Because we are doing this in October and the beginning of this fall season and the and the haunted season, of course, as I was sleuthing on you and finding out more about your background, you did a project with the Sacramento Library, and I did some reading there, and I, I kind of remember some pieces, and you were doing something called the Poe Project. And Indeed. It's the one book I didn't bring down here. I, I do have a, a poem that is Poe-inspired. I, I did Poe for my orals in grad school, and I <clears throat> was always aware of Edgar Allan Poe because, strangely enough, my sister uh, was a good friend of Lorna Poe, who was the daughter of James Poe, <clears throat> who got an Oscar for uh, doing the, the movie script for Around the World in 80 Days. And so uh, she was related to the Poe's, 
And so, you know, I grew up, and then I read Poe early on. Then the project of the Poe, the Poe project, uh, kind of emerged out of a, a chance moment at, the, uh, at a dinner where I was with Rivka Sass, and she was the head of the public library. They were doing a, a monthly thing of uh, the book of the month. What ended up happening was there was uh, someone who was also doing uh, movie stuff, retelling uh, tales through cinema. And so we all got together and did this very large uh, kind of citywide event with large performances. One evening I put together uh, lines and from poems and from stories uh, with a, a string quartet that played music in between. Uh, that was a big event down at the library. But here's Poe on electric bass. Most of us thought he'd have snapped up the mic to sing lead, to mourn aloud in southern lyric blues voice. All those lost ladies and the stubborn presence of death in each of our lives. Yet we were assured of how much he'd matured when, still dressed in black, he strapped on the fender bass and stood off a little to the side his volume up strong, the tall speaker throbbing, hypnotic substructures to every song that rocked from the moonlit stage, mounted for our festivities downtown in the city of grief. <laughs> he would probably have been in a, a band uh, if he'd been born today, just like Shakespeare. Well, Shakespeare probably would have been a scriptwriter. He pretty much was. Yes. <laughs> wrote those scripts that lasted forever. I, I love the debate of whether Shakespeare was real, if he was more than one person. That there's so much interesting historical conjecture around Shakespeare. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't know if there's ever going to be uh, an absolutely agreeable, authoritative uh, narrative that explains him. Basically, you fall back on what genius is, and genius is inexplicable in a way. Yes, exactly. Once again, I want to remind you that you're listening to Be More Now. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I'm speaking with poet John Allen Can. Edgar Adam Poe, why did you get involved with that project? Well, you know, Poe's, you know, he's, he's, the, he's the classic American figure of a writer who struggled, basically was, you know, mis, you know, kind of I misused, but he wasn't really given his due during his lifetime. And then afterwards, here he is. He's one of the most influential writers uh, in the world. Uh, and the crazy thing is America doesn't really take him so much to his chest, not like the French. I mean, Baudelaire translated all of Poe and turned him into an extremely influential figure in liter literature and the arts in Europe. So he's a kind of, you know, and then there's the whole thing about was he a dipsomaniac? He, you know, didn't drink well, and his very last days of his life are, again, filled with controversy and different tellings. And then I'm willing to ask this question. What is a dipsomaniac? A dipsomaniac is someone who's instantaneously an alcoholic. They just can't handle alcohol. Dipsomania is an inclination so that the first time you drink, you're pretty much, you know, going. You're hooked forever. You're going to be a drink until the bottle's empty, kind of a thing. Yeah, and apparently Poe didn't take much for him to get drunk, but you know he was also a model of industry, 
And, you know, uh, there's that sense of his fascination with the whole thing that, you know, everybody faces at some point, which is their own mortality. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, as Stephen said, you know, death is the mother of beauty. Right. Trying to maintain some part of ourselves before it's over. As if the arts are a way of preparing for it. Yeah, that's one of the things about creativity and the emotional expression because we all live with that. And then you have to be okay with the mystery, but you still want to approximate it and and stab at it as much as possible. I find that, you know, we do poetry out loud in Mendocino County with the students, high school students memorize from the canon of English poetry. And Poe is, is a poet who's a possibility for students to pick. And often high school students pick Poe. It's that, and they love Poe. And it is, I believe, you know, when you're that age, I know my mom used to say to me, God, you're so, I, you're a happy kid. Why do you write about death all the time? And there's something about that period of life where you're questioning it all, right? Like, what am I? What is it? And Poe speaks to that. Yes, that he does. nature. <clears throat> yeah. He's, a, he's a, poem, a poet of nightmare, really. He kind mm-hmm. of articulated nightmare. And uh, and when you're an adolescent or you're in that phase where you're looking for yourself, you know, it, it seems nightmarish at times, too. He's also very funny in his own ways. But, you know, <clears throat> he's not someone I read uh, now as often as I read uh, other poets. Uh, and, and really, to be honest, lately the two poets, well, actually, I gone through another, you know, you, you, you find your poets and you and you return to them. And so John Keats is one that I spent a lot of time with lately. And, you know, that's fascinating because the guy was done at 25. And yet here I am, you know, in my entering my eighth decade and I'm fascinated and intrigued and, and illuminated and engaged by a poet who, you know, uh, died in 1825 at the age of, you know, 20, 25, I think. 25. What, is, what, what is it about his poetry that fascinates you? Well, <clears throat> you know, he's a storyteller, and yeah. he had an incredibly marvelous ear and a um, fabulous uh, lexicon. His, his language is very wide and very rich. Uh, and so uh, reading his, his late work, the Hyperion poems, uh, with friends... Uh, lately, uh, through Zoom and stuff, has been has been a, a great way to get you know um, a kind of blast out of the out of the Romantic era and and what survives. You know, when you deal with the odes, uh, you are dealing with poetry that has uh, you know survived the test of time. But then there's two poets that uh, who don't work in poetry, who I I've been spending a lot of time with, and that's the piano music of. Frederick Chopin and Franz Schubert, who I consider poets in their own right, and in some ways uh, make sound uh, uh, create uh, a poetry that uh, is universal. Uh, as I think Walter Cater said, that you know all all arts aspire to the condition of music, and right. so music has been the sense of sound is, is so important to both my enjoyment of poetry and the composition of poetry. 
me as well. I find when I'm writing my poems, I have to read as I'm writing, read aloud as I'm writing. That's my process. Line by line, I'll get a stanza, I'll read it. How does it feel? I'll move on. Sometimes it'll come to me just whole and then I'll read it afterwards. But the way the language is in my ears is pivotal for how it fits to the page. Yeah. I think that the poet is, is an instrument of the musical dynamics of English in our for our language. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, you're right. I work the same way. There's a the, the final the poem reaches its finality when you start saying it out loud. You start exactly. you know you know and and memorizing poems is an interesting way of editing them because when you have memorized them and you read them to you know you recite them to yourselves sometimes you cut things or change words that your unconscious does for you and you ha- you have to pay attention to those marvelous changes because <laughs> your unconscious is doing doing it for you. So, you know, it seems often that writing is a is a is a process of slenderizing or compressing. <laughs> well, I have an exercise that I do with youth that I have them write, and then I have them cut what they wrote in half, and then cut in half again, cut in half again, and they end up with either three or six words, depending on how much they wrote. And they are like, what? It's impossible. What? And then when they're done, they see it. How did I distill all that writing into three words? Wow. And I I have them present the whole thing as one poem. But it's really cool. There's a sparseness to the language. I tend to be more of a narrative poet, so I'm telling stories. So a lot of mine aren't stripped down fragments of words. But it's, it's very important, I think, in the writing of poetry to understand that aspect, that you can say so much with so little. Yes. Yes. Uh, which I My most recent writing was, let me see if I have it here, is a haiku. And uh, I started writing. We went on a trip this summer, uh, Robin and I, to actually to a wedding that never took place because the groom ended up catching COVID. And so there we were uh, uh, driving across the country, and it just seemed that the haiku was a way of capturing uh, these little moments. The beauty of, say, South Dakota, you know, gave, and I think I have it memorized. It goes, shuffling copper Thins on sapphire waters, sun bolts gold into eyes. Mm. It's five seven five. Though linguistically haiku in English, you know, it's Chinese or the calligraphic. The they they get a lot more mileage out of their syllables than we do. But it's still a good, like you say, to compress your visions into three lines and. 22 syllables is, is 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 good practice. Yes. And Jane Reichold, who's a haiku poet, who's very instrumental in the Ukiah Haiku Festival, she was a real stickler for not being a stickler, that because of the difference in language and what you just said, you know, English is, is more spread out. It's harder to distill, that she just believed that it was the short, long, short that you had to achieve in your form you know, in terms of lines. So I, I always appreciated that about her. Well, I think the haiku is, uh, you know, it's it's the model poem. I mean, you're, there's there's the haiku moment. There's that epiphanic moment that you're trying to capture in language. It's, it's trying to get that little collision between perceptions that make that spark that is that uh, magic that a haiku holds. Right. You know, I am happy that I, I, I'm not teaching anymore. I have to say, 
to just to be able to devote my time full time to to writing has has been great. You know, teaching and writing is it's a tough gig. Uh, as one professor told me very early on, you know, many a poet has been murdered by becoming a professor. That's exactly right, and and I think many a poet can be. It doesn't happen all the time, but can't be murdered by becoming a master's in fine arts, you know? Absolutely. The academic circumstance where poets end up, because it's a a way of making a living, and, you know, I worked with kids for a long time, uh, you know, K through 12, and then after that, you know, the early years of college, uh, at a community college, and, you know, I gave them my best shot always, but, you know, it's a lot of psyches pulling on you. And, uh, you know, then you end up with a stack of papers that you've got to mark. And then you're just exhausted. And it's like, where's your poetry in that? I find with, with youth, one of the things that I, I do find is I end up writing poetry in the classrooms while they're working. And that's always very instrumental for me. I enjoy that. That's good. I develop a lot of my own lessons. And that when I'm creating my lessons, I write poetry because I want examples for the lessons that I'm creating. Or I'll write something that is for kids that ends up not being for kids at all. I'm like, okay, well, I have to write another example poem. (laughs) True. I try not to downplay the sophistication even in the schools, especially because I do a lot of work with high schools. But, (laughs) you know, one of the things that I developed was the ability to write in the cracks, you know, in those loose moments where... Uh, you you just have to be ready to jot things down, and uh, so uh, you know when I look over how much I've written, I you know I found a lot of opportunities to write because poetry is written in all cultures. Oh you know? yeah, I mean so it's kind of the universal language. Just and some cultures I mean, really revere their poet. You're a superstar in some cultures. Latin cultures, when I say I'm a poet, they're like, oh, you know, people love it. In this country, you know, it's, it's gotten better over, you know, maybe my lifetime. But there was a period of time when I remember saying, hey, can I share a poem? People were like, uh, you know, maybe, uh. Yeah, and that's, well, that's what happens. Let's face it. You know, I'm very reluctant to say, hey, I have a poem in my pocket, you know, would you like to hear it still to this day? Well, I'm not, and I, I've been writing these deeper political questioning poems that I try not to choose sides, but your perspective will come through no matter what. And yeah. I, I was at a dinner party, and I did my Antiode to a Mass poem, and a, I'd done the one Antiode to Mr. Global, and everyone was like, oh, my God, that's so true, you know. And then I did Antiode to a Mass, and I had one of the guests threw a napkin at me, you know, and it just created this whole big thing and this polite dinner party. And the hosts didn't care at all. They thought it was fun and funny, and, you know, everybody was like, oh, wait a minute, what are we doing, you know, and people got clear really quick. But it was it was highly entertaining. Your, your poetry is provocative. You're provocative. It's provocative, yeah. I push. I push the envelope because I feel like if we're not having dialogue about these that are intelligent, we're not going to ever get past it. If we're just sitting in our corners with our thoughts and not risking pushing them out there to each other, then what are we doing? (laughs) Are you working on anything particular now? How can listeners find out more about your poetry? Well, I have been working on these poems that have been distilling how I feel about the circumstances in America right now, which are dispatches. And I I just finished putting them, typing them up, and, and I could read one of those, if you like. They're, sure. they're poems, um, like some of the things I read the other night, where you're, I'm trying to, trying to get down the peril of the moment uh, and, in a way, 
thinking about America, you know, that great poem that Webin called it, uh, and putting it putting it into words. So I'll read uh, dispatch number four, and it's not too long, and maybe dispatch number five. Okay, families broke apart. Everyone wanted more autonomy, ultimately more privacy. Everyone seemed to have a chance to be independent and thus to wage war against loneliness alone. The conundrum is how to belong when you're all by yourself. Artists of stone, word, and paint work alone, use their mediums to speak of what was, what is, and what's to come in such a way as to touch what we all have in common. A wind moves through them, come from the origin of all things, though now we have screens, screens that keep us comfortably apart, seemingly together. Truly, we are being screened by our screens. I love that. (laughs) Why don't you read the second one? (laughs) Okay, dispatch number five. Supply chains have become pinched. This atop a sudden void in the consumer base. Look, broken systems break people. Cupboards only hold so much emptiness. Any leader who thinks only of his own affairs one day shall be tangled in shadows. Demean people and tarnish your soul. Divide yourself from others and you cut yourself in half. Money puts the politics of self up for sale. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Speak it, brother. (laughs) Well, thank you, John, Alan, Can. What a great name. We're out of time. Fabulous poem. It's fabulous. Great to be here. I hope uh, it might happen again sometime in the future. Yeah, me too. I think it will. It has been such a pleasure having this conversation with you. Well, thank you very much for having me, Blake. And there we have it. John Allen Can. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and you've been listening to Be More Now right here on KZYX. Again, Don't forget to pledge. This is the pledge drive, our silent pledge drive, which is a little bit less silent when I'm telling you about it. So be sure and let us know that you support us. Feel free to mention Be More Now and say you were listening to me when you decided to make your pledge. Visit kzyx.org. And of course, you can mail a check to PO Box 1 Philo 95466 Or tomorrow, you can call 707-895-2324. Again, 707-895-2324. And thank you so much for listening. KZYX, we thank you for being here for 33 years on the air. Happy 33rd, KZYX, for all the great programming and all the support of all the listeners like you and the programmers like me. Lots of gratitude. Stay tuned for The Treehouse with W. Dan and more amazing programming right here on KZYX. 
This is Blake Moore with Be More Now. Thank you so much for listening and sending you all so much love. Have a beautiful night. And don't forget to visit kzwex.org and make that pledge.